my husband told me like when he first come across Randall that he was laying mainly on his stomach, that his eyes were open, they were covered in dust and he actually thought he was dead because he wasn't breathing at that stage. And then next minute he said Randall took these couple of big horrid deep breaths and that must have been, he must have started breathing again then. The the breathing okay at the moment. Is it a big property? That blood pressure is not coming up. Hi, my name is Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is a podcast series about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Wiradjuri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge Elders past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First Peoples land and always will be. have to be every parent's nightmare to arrive at an accident scene of a rollover and discover one of your children was badly injured. If this happened in the city or even a regional area, you know that help is not far away and you can get assistance quickly. But what if you're more than 500 kilometres north of Adelaide on a remote dirt track? This is what happened to Karina and Gerard Sheehan. G'day, Karina. Thanks for making the time to talk to me today. Hi, Lana. Thank you. Look, before we dive into this story, would you tell me a little bit about Mulawantana Station and where you you live? Yep. um, Mulawantana is a cattle pastoral lease that's about 200 kilometres northeast of Lee Creek, um, which is our closest town. It's right on the end of the Flinders or the Gammon Ranges and also uh, Along the dog fence, if anybody knows where that runs from, the, like South Australia or through South Australia to the New South Wales border sort of thing. And what sort of size is the station? The station is just under 2,000 square kilometre, so like 1,880 square K or 180,000 hectares. Wow. Um, and it's just my husband and myself that um, are here that run it and Yes, we own the lease and run it as well. To put the size of your station into perspective, it's actually only just under the size of the Australian Capital Territory. Um, but thankfully, you don't have any local or federal government living there. <laughs> <laughs> Does it seem big to you or is it just normal? No, it's normal now. Um, I suppose when you first come out in the bush and everything, it sort of seems a long way to go from point A to point B. But no, it's just normal now with the development of vehicles and so forth to get around and do sort of stuff is a lot quicker and not like it used to be. What, what does the landscape look like? Because I've seen some photos of, of that part of the world and it almost seems bleak, but I don't know if that's just because a lot of the photos I see are, are you know, mid-drought. No, I've had several people that have come here, geologists and so forth over the years that say they love it, it's the best part of Australia they've been to and really love it here. We've got a mixture of topography from like hilly range country to lakesides, sand hills, rocky springs and mound springs and Mitchell grass flats. So every little corner of the place is different. Wow. And how do you generate income there at the station, you and your husband? We're predominantly a beef cattle property, but obviously with the drought and having to de 
pretty much destocked a few years ago. Yeah, things got a bit tight, but we also do a contract earth moving business, which we've been doing uh, for several years, mainly for the local mining companies. Have you and the family lived there for a long time? Well, my husband's grandfather bought the property back in 1955, so about 67 years ago. And then my father-in-law, being the oldest out of the family, got sent up here. And then, yes, my husband was born and raised here, even though he worked on properties in the Territory in Queensland and top of South Australia. But, yeah, we've been here for about 22 years. Well, I have been. Yeah. And did you have your family there? Like, have you had children grow up there on the station? Yes. Jared's parents um, only retired about five years or oh, seven years ago now in 2015. And like our sons were born here and, yeah, raised and, well, they still come home every now and then. So, and, and how do you access health services and so forth in such a remote part of the world? Do you have a regular flying doctor clinic that comes out on a bush run or how, how does it all work? Well, when our children were younger, well, when I was actually pregnant with my children and when they were small and needed immunisation needles and so forth, we dealt with a flying doctor and we were part of the clinic runs that pass through or over uh, once a month. But anything other than that, we used to go to Lee Creek and see the local doctor in there. But because Lee Creek is now pretty much turning into a bit of a ghost town, there's only one doctor that visits there. I think it's once a fortnight, one once a week. So have you had to use the, the RFDS services Historically, I know we're going to talk about the accident with your son, Randall, but prior to that, has the service been used extensively by your family? Or um, Yes, we've probably nearly all have used it, um, either through ringing up the RFDS, needing assistance from drugs out of the medical chest for one condition or another. And yes, I think nearly all of us have actually used the plane at one, <laughs> one time or another as well. Right. Karina, take me back to that day in, was it 2021 when this accident occurred? Yes, we'd just actually been down like at Corn, which is a little town outside of Port Augusta, and celebrated Randall's 21st birthday. We were actually going to come home on the Sunday, but we stayed an extra day because of the celebrations and thought everybody might have needed a day to dry out and day to catch up on some sleep. So we all turned around and come home on the Monday. Randall, Isla and Jared and myself come home on Monday and our other son, he had to head up north of William Creek to go back to work as well. So so there were two vehicles or three vehicles following? Only Jared and myself were following Randall and Isla. Like Isla actually, she was the main driver to start with and drove the bulk of the way probably until I gather she got tired and then they swapped over. Um, at the stage when they swapped over, Jared and I nearly went in front of them, but then Jared said, "No, we'll just stick behind them. Let them go first. It's a long drive, isn't it? How far? How long does it take to drive from there all the way back to your station? About five and a half hours if the roads are good. First hundred k's is bitumen, and the last three hundred is dirt. What sort of conditions are the roads in? Is it um, a hard slog? It can be on and off. Most of the time, it's just mainly just corrugation because it, like they just get left go too long before they like have a maintenance grade but I mean in saying that they can't continuously be graded every five minutes. Yeah so about what time of day was it where you were following along and noticed a, a massive cloud of dust? It was about half past two in the afternoon and yes we dropped back behind Randall a bit further just because the dust was hanging in the air and we were probably 40 50 k's away from home yeah, we could see a big cloud of dust coming in because of the road we were using. Trucks also use that road and we just thought that it might have been a truck coming towards us. 
Mm. Um, so, yeah, we were slowing down naturally to try and get off the road a bit to allow the truck to more room to get along. But, uh, no, we found out when we got a little bit closer after the dust settled, I looked at this thing on the side of the road and went, what the heck's that there? And my husband said, that's the car. Randall's rolled the car. i, I got to say, Karina, I saw a photo of the ute on on the internet it's like was upside down and the cab is crushed like just unbelievably crushed what were your thoughts when you saw the vehicle as you pull up next to the vehicle you just sort of went where are they you look straight towards the cab to start with and then when you saw the cab squash so low and nobody in it it sort of once was sort of a sigh of relief but then it sort of went well where are they are they under the car where are they? And it just, yeah, everything, you know, goes through your head in a split second sort of thing. You start looking around. But fortunately, in that sense, they were both thrown from the vehicle, which may have saved their life. I mean, the, it was an old Toyota, so it never had all the safety airbags and, and all that sort of stuff in it. And we're guessing Randall most likely drifted off to sleep because Isla can remember um, talking to him and he never replied at one stage. And then he's obviously just drifted over enough to clip the edge of a gate on a grid, which obviously busted a few tires, like a couple of tires on that side. And then I'm guessing he slammed on the brakes and the whole works with the tires busted and the brakes and so forth. And yeah, it just caused it. Unfortunately, if it was either side the grid, and he ran off the road, he would have probably still been fine because there was nothing either side of that grid. Wow. So Randall and Isla were not in the crushed cab of the upside-down ute. Where were they? Yeah, Isla was probably about five metres in front of the vehicle or the like the engine end of the vehicle, and Randall was probably a good 10 metres out like, from the tray end of the vehicle. We're not really sure how Randall got where he did, but Isla was sort of guessing she sort of might have come out the front window as it rolled over because she still had the rubber band that was around the front window around one of her legs. Wow. Wow. So, okay. And and you still can't quite figure out how Randall ended up 10 metres away. He must have been really thrown out at quite some speed. Well, you sort of think that they would have been going fairly fast, but those old diesel tray tops, you have to be going downhill to get a fair bit of speed up. <laughs> 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 but I mean, in saying that, probably to the conditions and the fact that he was tired, yes, I mean, naturally, like speed all comes down to the conditions you're driving in, really. It runs through our mind, like we sort of think, you know, if he was going a little bit slower, they could have been stuck in the cab. You know, all things go through your mind and, you know, what could have happened if they were going even slower or if they pulled up sooner. But, I mean, hindsight's always a good thing. And, yeah, yeah, if you want to keep looking back on it, you sort of, we feel that you won't go forwards, really. Tell me what you saw. How was Isla as you approached her? Isla was laying on her back. Um, she was just sort of obviously coming around conscious because I could talk to her. She complained about a sore back, like she couldn't straighten her legs and her neck was a bit sore. Um, I felt very sorry for her because she wanted a drink. She was laying in a bigger mob of prickles and so forth and I couldn't let her have anything. <laughs> Tried to keep her like the sun from stop shining on her, but she was conscious and was able to talk to you and tell you sort of what was wrong, like where she hurt and so forth. Bit of relief that that was the case yeah. and you know that she wasn't unconscious or worse. Did you then run over to Randall or, or did did your husband tell you what was happening with Randall? Well I did run over to Randall but when I got there he was starting to breathe. He was struggling with his breath but he was breathing and he was conscious but my husband told me like Jared told me that when he first come across Randall that he was laying mainly on his stomach 
that his eyes were open, they were covered in dust and they were sort of half bulging out of his head and he actually thought he was dead because he wasn't breathing at that stage and he was just like thought that he was going to have to start like trying to resuscitate or something and then next minute he said Randall took these couple of big horrid deep breaths. Yeah, and that must have been, he must have started breathing again then. Gosh, okay. So what do you do? You're you're 500 kilometres away from, you know, a tertiary hospital. How did you get help in such a remote location? You've got two very badly injured people. What did you do to get help? Well, the first thing I suppose that goes through your mind when you realise how seriously they could be injured is, yeah, you need to contact a doctor and naturally it's the RFDS you think about when you're out here and then so the next thing you think of, well, how am I going to do it? Obviously, you can't use telephones, so we deal with the Beverly Uranium mine a fair bit with some work and know quite a lot of people there, so we're actually able to call them up on the UHF, which they are probably about 15 k's away from where we the accident occurred, and ask them to call the RFDS for us, and if possible, if they could send their medics out to give us a hand. Wow. So did they respond quickly? Yes, they were really good extremely helpful and we owe them a gratitude of thanks for everything they've done to help us out. Yeah, they relayed messages for us through the UHF to the RFDS. The plane actually was apparently loaded up and ready to leave Port Augusta on a clinic run and so they just diverted it straight up here to pick one patient up and they had to get another plane to pick the other patient up. Okay, so then, so when you had the the paramedic and medical team from the local uranium mine come, was it a long wait for them to, to come? They possibly broke a few protocols. I don't know. <laughs> they were extremely helpful and, and, yeah, they just come out and assisted us. Well, what seemed like straight away, it probably felt like it was only a 10-minute wait. But, no, they were, yeah, extremely helpful and there pretty quickly. How did they stabilise Randall and Isla? Did they have sufficient capacity and equipment and so forth to work on both at the same time? Yeah, they basically just put um, lines in for drips and obviously administered pain relief. I can't remember which one they put on a spot. One they put on a spinal board and the other one they had one of the like bag type spinal bag sort of things you pump mm-hmm. up and it sort of yeah holds them in so they can't move. Randall had actually sort of come to before they'd got there and actually at one stage tried to get up and told Jared that I think I broke my collarbone. So I think he broke a little bit more. <laughs> so did you have any idea on the extent of the injuries of both of them? Because it's there you are, you know, in the middle of the afternoon in this really remote place and you can only really go off your intuition and, and how the patients are responding. Did you have any idea on, on the type of injuries they'd suffered? No. With Isla, I thought she, yeah, she might have had spinal injuries. Naturally, you think with both of them, there's possibly internal bleeding and so forth. So you're trying to look for a bit of bruising and that without being yeah, intrusive or poking around too much. And the fact that they were responding and like Isla was coherent enough to be able to tell me what she could remember and things like that, I thought, well, hopefully all her mind seems clear and, and so forth. Um, and I sort of spent probably more time with her because Jared sort of stayed with Randall. Yeah, I didn't. I could only see Randall trying to get up across the flat and trying to yell at Jared to tell him to lay down. So <laughs> he's sort of more worried that if he started moving, that yeah, he could do more damage to. Like he did have a spinal injury as well. 
Mm. Now, the RFDS comes to collect, two planes came out to collect Randall and Isla, but obviously there's no strip um, right where the accident had happened. How far away were they able to land and how were they transported? How were the two patients transported to the planes so that they could get to hospital? Well, Beverly are also set up to be sort of like the local ambulance out here if they really get desperate like mm. for the bush area. So they were able to use their ambulance to take them to um, an Epic Energy compressor station uh, accommodation area, which was probably about five kilometres away. And we used their accommodation facilities and their airstrip to fly them both out. Oh, that's fortuitous, isn't it, that there was a, an airstrip just five kilometres away? That's brilliant. I think a, a lot of people don't realise that there's about 3,500 airstrips across Australia, which the RFTS accesses at various times when they're needed. So quite fortuitous on such a large bit of remote South Australia for there to be one so close. Yeah, I mean, we look at it and look at the many, like the kilometres we did before then and said, anywhere else that that accident occurred you might not have got anyone on a UHF you might have had to try and cart them yourself and you'd have to be thinking about well I still need to get hold of the RFDS how am I going to contact them like because they need to try and get in the air Mm. or you know try and get a plane from somewhere you know we were fortunate enough the plane was ready to go and I wasn't already on a clinic run or somewhere else helping somebody else. So did you go with them to the airstrip and, and did you end up on the plane or did you end up driving back to Adelaide? When the RFDS doctors arrived, they all arrived on the first plane and they thought they might be able to load everyone onto it, like both Randall and Isla. But then when they started adding up the weight and the weight of their bags of equipment and so forth, they said they, they'd be able to fly, but if they got into trouble flying, like had an engine problem or something, that's you know, things could turn worse. So they were going to fly Isla out to start with. Yeah, when we were back at Epic Energy, they basically cut all their clothes off them and, yeah, started monitoring and giving them more drips and pain relief and everything else. And at that stage, Randall was, well, he was responding, saying he had a sore head. And, I mean, you look at his head and at the area that was impacted, you would never have thought that he would have had a head injury. It, you would think basically the size of a, uh, the top of a can mm. was about that big, if that, and it was just like a bit of a bump and probably slight sort of red dots to the surface mm. of his skull. There was no big indentation, no cracks, no blood coming out of it. There was nothing like that that you would actually really have thought that he had a head injury to that extent that he had. But, yeah, he started saying, my head really hurts, and then he stopped responding. And so they had to intubate him before they even stuck him on the plane. So he was basically intubated and then quickly loaded onto the plane and then gone. So and then the second plane landed on the strip when it was completely dark. So we had the strip had to be lit up, and then we had cars on either end, like, shining down the strip. And then Isla was loaded, and I think it must have been nearly midnight by the time she got to Adelaide. So how did you then follow? Did you then go all the way back? You'd been driving all day. Like Jared and I um, kept coming home. We got home and then we sort of sat here um, until about one o'clock before we heard from the hospital staff about Randall, like because we had to go and clean up the scene of the accident and so forth. So the following day we did that, like collected all his gear because he had all his presents were strewn everywhere and everything from his 21st and his toolbox from like because he's an apprentice as a heavy diesel mechanic yeah and yeah so 
we had to go and clean that up and pick up the car and tidy up the scene and and sort out some things here because we'd been away for a couple of days and there's nobody else on the property. And then I um, rang the Beverly Mine and asked them if I could possibly grab a seat on one of their planes that was leaving the next day to go to Adelaide, which I was fortunate enough to do that. And, yeah, I flew down the following day. So when you arrived to Adelaide in the hospital there where both Randall and Isla are. What was the first conversation you had with the doctors as you sort of arrived on the scene? I managed to get a glimpse of Randall before a doctor sort of yeah, bowled me up and took me to a room and like that was a big shock then um, to see that. But when they rang us on the telephone the night of his accident, they said he had a small bleed on his brain and they had to remove a little a small section of his skull and it didn't seem as bad as what it was. And then when I got down there, the doctor took me aside, said they had to, re- like I said, remove a section of his skull, which ended up being a fair chunk of it because of the pressure that was building up in the bleeding of his brain. If they didn't do it, the blood actually then pulls at the base of your neck and then it pressure actually pinches your spinal cord and therefore you would have died. Oh, my gosh. So they took me aside into a room. They said that he had six broken ribs, a broken collarbone, uh, fractures to his spine, fractures to his pelvis, a laceration to his spleen, which they were monitoring um, and hope that they didn't have to take out, and a big hematoma to, uh, just above his right kidney. And then they told me that because he was the brain injury, that he'd have to learn how to walk, talk, eat again, the whole works, that they didn't know if he'd ever be able to finish his apprenticeship and that he'd never be the same. Oh, that's just horrible. As a mother, to get that news, how, how did you take it? Oh, well, naturally a few little tears leak out. <laughs> um, but at the same time, it was like you just go, right, well, I can't change it. There's nothing I can do. This is a situation. And so we've got to move forwards. So the next thing, because they also told us he'd be in the ICU for weeks to possibly months, and then between hospital and rehabilitation for 12 to 24 months. Gosh. So, like, it's all gone through your mind. You go, right, so first of all is, like, Randall's the main priority, and then second is, like, right, what are we going to do? If you're only camping in a motel at the moment, like, you're going to have to find accommodation, long-term accommodation, you know, the whole works. It's, yeah, everything sort of wants to hit you at one time, <laughs> but, yeah, you deal with it, I guess, you just like do one step at a time. Well, it's, a, it's another point, isn't it, where if you live in a city, you know, you can go home and shower and change and come back. But if you live hours and hours and hours away, you need to be there. But where do you stay? So what did you see Randall at that time? And what did he look like in ICU? Yes. After I spoke to the doctor, they got to go in and, and stay with him um, until like only the few hours that you're allowed to be with a patient in the ICU. And, yeah, he was just laying there on a bed, a sheet basically up to his waist, sort of slightly propped up, heaps of wires and tubes attached to him and his head was basically shaved and and then a sort of a strap plaster sort of over where the end, like where they'd cut the section of his skull out and even, you know, like he had, you could see a drain at the back of his head and so forth and that side of his face obviously was getting swelling up because of the impact I guess. Gosh and and was Isla there in ICU as well? Where was Isla? She fortunately if you could say that she actually 
I only spent about five days in hospital. She had fractures to her sternum, wrist, uh, three vertebrae, and that was it. Three vertebrae, and that was it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, she was up and walking the next day pretty much. So Randall was in, like, the ICU ward for in the coma, like because he was placed in a medically induced coma for four yeah. days. And on the fourth day, yeah, um, I brought Isla around in the wheelchair so she could actually see him because he was just starting to talk and mumble, um, like really slur his words. You know, I suppose anybody that's under that not heavy sedation of medication and pain relief and everything. But in saying that, the fact that you'd ask him a question and he'd sort of answer you a bit, like that was wonderful to hear. Not that he was going to lay there and not do anything. Like, And you could see his legs were restless. Um, he was trying to move them. And apparently at one stage he did try to pull the tubes out of his mouth. So they were all good signs, but like the doctor said, because he's so heavily sedated, we don't know if there's other like hidden things underneath until you you remove the sedation. Yeah. Karina, I can tell you that my father had um, heart surgery a couple of years ago and had a major stroke while he was having that surgery. And he was there in ICU and they were saying, oh, yes, he's going to come out of this shortly and he didn't come out the way we thought he would. And there's nothing like sitting by an ICU bed and not knowing whether your loved one is is going to come out of this or not. So I, I can completely, yeah, I completely get where you were at at the time. So what happened as Randall came out of out of the coma and was he able to recognise you and, and what happened? Uh, not much. Like he's like obviously very, very tired and, and like I said, very pumped up on pain relief and the whole works. And, yeah, Isla and I sort of sat with him and trying to talk to him a little bit and, you know, each other. And then, like, he, at one stage they reached up to scratch his head and I grabbed his arm and said, you can't do that, mate. And he said, itchy dot, 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 head. <laughs> <laughs> Very mumbled response, but, yeah, you can understand it. The fact that he was doing all that, responding the way he was, it was just, really, really surprising. One of his main, well, the main nurse that I got to know while he was in the ICU unit was a gentleman who'd been mixed up with ICU for over 30-odd years. And one morning I was coming in there after they'd brought him around and he's standing out the corridor and just like a go umpire with his arms into like Randall's lot ward into the bed and said, I just can't believe it. I just cannot believe it, how quick he sort of responded and come out of it and like it's pretty much raring to go sort of thing. Like five days after his accident, he was able to talk to Jared on the phone and he was actually even shifted out of the ICU and talked to Jared on the phone because Jared actually was still home here. What was the recovery period like for Randall? How long did he end up being in hospital for and when was he able to actually come home? Well, like his accident was on the 15th of March. On the 18th of March, while he's still in a coma, they were actually going to try and operate on his pelvis. Yeah, they thought they might have to staple it and so forth. They were hoping they could actually just do it through keyhole surgery because when you have your pelvis operated on, there's lots of stuff that can affect you, even long-term sort of thing, like just with calcium deposits and everything that you have to take medication for to you know, dissolve and all that sort of thing that will happen for the rest of your life. Fortunately, they were able to manipulate his pelvis back into line through x-ray. Wow. So that happened on the 18th. The 19th, they removed all his tubes and he brought him out of sedation. On 
the 20th, um, it shifted him out of the ICU to a normal ward. On the 23rd, he had 60 staples removed from his scalp, like that was holding it closed. Eek! <laughs> yeah. On the 31st of March, um, so basically 16 days later, he was shifted, uh, he went to the rehab centre at Hampstead. Uh, which actually when he rocked up there because we sort of he had to get taken in an ambulance and we sort of followed behind um when he walked in they actually didn't know if he was meant to be there they thought that he was probably there as a worker because he walked in with his high-vis work clothes on and his steel cap boots an arm in a sling from his broken collarbone and this little blue helmet on his head like to protect where the section of the skull was removed <laughs> so he waltzes in there and they're looking at him going what are you doing? <laughs> anyway, on the 14th of April, it got that way. The assessors at like Hampstead weren't even sure what to do with him and discharged him on the 17th of April. So just over a month from the accident, he was discharged from rehab. Gosh, they breed him tough in South Australia. <laughs> he had some physio and, and things like that. And obviously then he had to wait for the section of his skull to be replaced, which that didn't occur until about the 27th of May. And then allow that to heal up. Unfortunately, that piece of skull eventually deteriorated. And only a couple of weeks ago, he's actually had that replaced with a titanium section. So he's sort of part robot now. <laughs> yeah, well, he reckons if he ever gets in a fight, you'll just have to tip his head that way. So. <laughs> and he went back to work about the 20th of July. So basically four months after his accident, he was back at work. Uh, has he recovered fully? Because they initially had such a horrible potential outcome of this saying you'd have to learn to walk again and talk again and all this sort of stuff is he just normal randall oh yeah yeah um if you didn't know he had his accident and once his hair grows back so you can't see his scar on his head yeah you would never know that was a not he'd been involved in an accident isn't that amazing the tenacity of the human body and what it's capable of putting up with i it never ceases to amaze me i hear these stories from people and i just go gosh you know that ute you know chewed him up and spat him out and despite that you know he within a very short period of time relatively fixed himself up and he's just back to it fortunately we had some really wonderful people yeah helped us out and mm. some of them, that was the first time we ever met them. So, yeah. That's fabulous. Do you have any words of advice, Karina, for people that are travelling on remote roads and and the sort of hazards that, that they can run into or the trouble they can have? I guess it's like anywhere. You've got to drive to the conditions. The biggest thing is, I suppose, even with our boys now, no matter where they are and what they're doing, I mean, that was actually back when we were waiting for Randall to catch the plane. One thing that was going through our mind was, like our other son, Alistair, he was he left Quorn that same day, but he had to head back north of William Creek to the property he was working on. So here we are sitting at, like, waiting for the plane to pick Randall up and wondering if Alistair's got back to like his place of work safely as well because he was travelling by himself, nobody behind him, nobody in front of him. And I don't know if the manager that on the property knew um, what time exactly to expect him other than expecting sometime that day. So our biggest thing now, and our boys understand it, or our sons understand it, that we always ring, even ourselves, like we just, even if it's just a quick thing, just leaving such and such now, going this way sort of thing. So they sort of roughly know we should be, you know, four or five hours or something, and we should be coming home this way. So, you know, if you've got to go look for them, you don't take the wrong road. 
Yeah, it's just common sense, isn't it, really? Just to inform people where you're going, where you're going to be, and when you're expected to be somewhere. So if you don't yeah. show up, somebody can come looking. Quite often now when people come out here to do work, um, and it doesn't matter even if they've got sat phones and everything with them. I mean, it wouldn't have done anything any good to uh, Island Randall if they had a sat phone with them. Like They wouldn't have been able to use the thing. You know, you just always ask them when they're coming out here just to give me a quick ring and let me know when they're leaving the last town they um, like go through, um, depending on obviously which direction they're coming from. I have one last question for you, Karina. Has has the accident with Randall and Isla changed your views on life at all or family? No, not really. Like family always comes first. Actually, if anything, probably early after the accident um, and when Randall got going again, it probably brought him and his brother together a bit closer. Well, it seemed to, because typical brothers are always arguing. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I think because his younger brother never treated him any differently, Mm. whereas I guess everybody else that heard about his accident, I guess were probably looking at him, waiting for him to say or do something strange because of his brain injury. Thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate you sharing the journey and I'm really happy that you and the family are all there and Randall's got his titanium cap (laughs) to be able to meet any other new obstacles or challenges head on. (laughs) Excuse the pun. (laughs) It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lana. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with family and friends. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join our new Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community, where you can chat to other listeners. And please do try out our new podcast hotline. You can call and leave an audio message with questions and feedback on the podcast. The number for the hotline is 02-8405-7928. We look forward to hearing from you. The Flying Doctor Podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Cullen. Thanks again for listening. Hi, this is Kumaran from Homebush, Sydney. I was listening to your latest podcast released on the 12th of May, 2022. It was really brilliant, intense, but really nice. I love how that nurse's reaction, the way she was talking about it, is like she was living through those moments. It's amazing. Thank you very much, and please keep them coming. I enjoy. Before I head off, I just want to thank one last time our sponsor and major national partner, Isuzu Ute Australia. Isuzu is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates, and this podcast would not be possible without their support. To learn more, search Isuzu Ute online.